when I was growing up in New York City, <coughs> Brooklyn, New York, <coughs> when we first started to be allowed to drive, we were pretty young, I don't remember how young, we had a little uh, game we used to play. We would drive into a gas station and ask for $2 worth of gasoline. And we would get $2 worth of gasoline and we'd give the attendant $2. And we'd wait a few moments until he looked at it and counted at it. And then we would drive away very quickly, screaming out of the window, so long, sucker. And the gasoline attendant would become frantic and start running after us. Sometimes angry, sometimes start laughing himself when he realized what had happened, and sometimes even angrier when he realized that we hadn't stolen two dollars, but we were just playing a word game. So we used to do this, this is how we got our kicks in those days. <laughs> Little did I realize that years later uh, it would come back to me. Uh, because in Korean Zen they have a, they summarize this approach called the dog runs after the bone, which is of course what happened to him. And in the interview situation, the really good uh, teachers have a way of using words to get you caught. Uh, and lead you into all kinds of blind alleys and then of course they just roar as you're stuck. I was reminded of it because a few weeks just before this retreat I was at a place where there was a lake and forest and a dog came from nowhere and wanted attention so you know I threw a log ran after it and got it and then this just never ended. So I got picked up a smaller one threw it into the lake and the dog ran into the lake and got it came back, we were, a few of us were trying to talk. So then I picked what I thought was a really fat log that he would never be able to handle, but he handled it. And just why this would have gone on forever, it seemed like it did. And the analogy to our mind is uh, pretty close. I'd like to uh, review some of the things that uh, we've been going over and practicing for the last few days on Samadhi in this context. In other words, the starting point is a mind that's running after bones all over the place. Thoughts come up, come up and say one thing, we run after that one. You're awful. Yeah, I am. We get that one in our mouth and run with it for a while. And I say, no, no, you're really wonderful. That's right, I am. And then we run with that one. <laughs> And so very often what the mind is doing is thoughts seem to be chasing themselves through the mind, through that space. Some of it isn't as funny. It's not funny at all. Or at least it presents itself as not being funny. And often the odd thing is that the mind thinks thoughts which make it unhappy. Which is kind of strange when you think about it. In other words, it's like a secretion, like digestive juices. But the heart or the mind, what it does, it produces these thoughts. <clears throat> it produces them. And then these very thoughts are what make us unhappy. Because, <clears throat> excuse me, 
one way to look at a large part of suffering is to see it as having unwanted thoughts. These thoughts that come through the mind are not thoughts that we want, and there they are. Sometimes they repeat themselves, sometimes they're very strong. And even when we go to sleep, they have a way of creeping into our world uh, called dreams. Now, do you remember, I don't know, a few days ago, talked about the first achievement in, in uh, shamatha meditation was the, to realize the cascading mind. I don't know who was there or what. Uh, for those who weren't there, some of the ancients uh, have charted this path. And the first stage of shamatha, and one way of looking at it, is realizing that the mind is like a cascading river, mountain river. It's full of thoughts, just cascading all over the place. And the realization is of that. And it's a realization because most people have that mind anyway, but they don't know it. So that there are all kinds of decisions being made in the world. People are getting married, deciding on war or peace, winning or losing elections, signing big checks, and it's all with that kind of mind that's quite wild confused, contradictory, inconsistent. This is the norm. So it's that kind of mind that uh, is being pointed to uh, when we say the dog runs after the bone. Uh, How many people in this room have attained the first attainment? (laughs) Only a few. Well, maybe you have to sit a little longer. (laughs) Remember, if you were uh, present, that the big danger that first phase of shamatha is that when you realize that the mind is cascading like a mountain cascading river uh, you can go two ways one way is you realize well this is my situation and get to work understand that this is not a way to live to have a mind that's like this especially if you know that there are possibilities to do something about it and the other way is to turn on yourself and conclude that obviously you're awful and that you shouldn't even be allowed to come to IMS because your mind is so scattered. And I keep, I keep reminding you the prerequisite to come here is that you have a wild, scattered mind. We don't let people with clear minds in this place. We make our living off your wild mind. <laughs> If your minds got clear, we would be, we'd have to get an honest job. <laughs> and I've already had those. I don't want to go back to them. Okay. <laughs> Let me... Um, review the samadhi practice in terms of if, you, if there's a reasonable amount of agreement that the normal state of the mind is that it's preoccupied and that these preoccupations are not neutral. neutral. They often, uh, very often, are stressful. The things that the mind is preoccupied with, the kinds of thoughts and moods that race through the mind produce suffering, discomfort, or we can just say in general stress, varying intensities. 
So the path of thought doesn't really go to peace. I'm not saying that there aren't some very beautiful and peaceful thoughts which help. Metta is a, a very, the metta meditation is a skillful use of that. We fill the heart with, with dharma. We give it thoughts that are helpful, that are constructive, that are beneficial. But an enormous number of thoughts that come through the mind are not that way. And the approach of samadhi practice, if you recall, is to replace one set of preoccupations, which is what the mind is doing anyway, and it's a kind of sleight of hand. While the mind, we know that the mind needs to be preoccupied with something. That's obvious. And so the old teachers came up with things, and one of the things they came up with, let's give it something else to nibble on, like the breath or Budo or any number of things. There really are quite a number. We're using the breath mainly. Some of you are using Budo to support your attention to the breath. Some of you are counting the breath or saying in, out. These are just various techniques, but essentially what's happening is the mind uh, left alone would really cause suffering for the heart. I'm using it these terms in, a, in the following way. Mind, in this sense, are thoughts and imaginings, fashionings, uh, all the constructions of what modern psychology deals with projections, etc. The heart is much more vast than that. And samadhi, samadhi practice, is one of the guardians of the heart. The heart is actually us. I have to use language. It isn't really us or even I or me, but uh, we have to use language. And it's often hurt a lot and the main person that hurts it is us. The heart keeps hurting itself, using the materials of the world, what happens to us. So the normal state, the kilesas, the kilesas dominate for a typical human being. Now, a shorthand way to understand the kilesas, it has to do with self-cherishing. The kilesas have everything to do with, it, with the, the, these preoccupations being preoccupations with ourselves. What we used to be, what we might be, if, I, if we take this meditation retreat, then we'll be something better than what we think we are now, which perhaps is better or worse than what we think we used to be. And the kalesas are various expressions of this self-cherishing. Now, how is samadhi a guardian? It's a guardian, not, it's not the guardian, because in this uh, approach, the way it's conceived of, there are two. One is samadhi and the other is vipassana. When these thoughts come up, moods, etc., because we grasp onto them, we then infuse those ideas, those moods with life. We give it reality and then, of course, we suffer. The heart suffers. The heart is actually quite innocent. It just knows. It's got a certain purity to it. And as we pointed out earlier on in the retreat, the practice is a struggle. It's an epic drama between wisdom, mindfulness and wisdom, versus the kilesas for the heart. At this point, for the most part, the heart is dominated, engulfed, covered over by the kilesas. This is 
speaking in general, for human beings. Uh, it's rampant. The problems in the world, problems of war, nuclear holocaust, um, pollution, are problems of the Kalesas. The problem is not the uh, nuclear energy. The problem are human minds. It's not guns or knives or mines or hand grenades or... It's, so there's a mind that has to conceive of it and there's a mind that has to want to use it. These are all expressions in the world. The problem in the world is that the Kalesas are getting stronger and deeper. Perhaps an inverse relationship between the decline of spirituality. I don't know, this is speculative and I'm not invested in it. It's just that uh, this frame of reference can help you understand yourself as well as uh, larger issues. The heart, in a sense, lies helpless, believing in greed, hatred, and delusion, unless educated and instructed, re-educated, so that it begins to understand what's good for itself. And that's the struggle. Wisdom is attempting to enlist the support of the heart. It's attempting to impress upon the heart the truths of reality. It's trying to teach the heart that greed, far from being something that's gratifying, is actually a disease and that no one wins in greed. But that's not how we're educated. We're actually brought up to be greedy. And so the job of wisdom is to constantly show the heart as much as it can do you see what's happening? When you do this, you get that. And look what happens. Look how you feel. And so that's why uh, wisdom is also a guardian of the heart. But this evening, let's just, uh, for the most part, limit it to samadhi practice. What we're doing in switching objects as we learn more and more to stay with the breath, is we turn down the option to catch on to something that creates suffering. One of the things that you can learn as you start keep coming back to the breath time and time again is that you have more options than you ever thought. You have one main option. You don't have to go along with the stuff in your mind. Now, we've had a lot of practice in doing that. And so we're highly developed in that way. We're adepts. So at the beginning, it's very difficult. The medicine for the heart is this object. This is what is called a kamatana, meditation object or field of work. This uh, object is a guardian of the heart because if we can strengthen it, if our samadhi can become strong, if, there, if we can fill the heart up with calm, if we have a kind of an anchor, then at will, or at least to uh, approaching that, we can switch to that object. And by attending to it, short circuit all of these other tendencies that are harmful to the heart. Now, this is not the eradication of these problems. This is not liberation or enlightenment. Actually, what happens is the thoughts go into abeyance. I'm not to try and make that clear. Let me go over it another way. 
what we're asking of you is not an easy thing. In samadhi practice, it's a form of renunciation. During the time that you're sitting and watching the breath, think of a few things that are going on. One, we've picked a very simple thing. One thing, the breath. And most of us come from very complicated lives where we have many choices, many conflicts, many decisions to make. Quite sophisticated, complex, and subtle. And this practice is an utter simplification. That's part of the difficulty and part of the beauty of it. It's training in simplicity. Probably simplicity like we've never known before. Because what you're doing, if you can turn to the breath, really turn to it, make that your sole interest while you're sitting, while you're practicing samadhi bhavana, what you're doing is renouncing the world. You've let go of the world because to really do this, you have to sink into the breath. And the only way you can do that is to let go of the grasping onto the world. And the world is in our mind. It's our world represented by those images and moods that keep coming up in the mind. So that's not easy. In those moments, if you're, let's say, have a, a few moments when you're very much with the breath or perhaps there's no thought, no images, and perhaps some peace, it's the beginnings of that. Now, as it goes deeper, what you do is you let go of everything, including the breath itself. This is not training and becoming breathomaniacs, even though it may seem so. The breath, it's not even about the breath, really. The breath is a vehicle. It's through the breath that we go through the breath and beyond it. The energies converge. All of these disparate things in the mind, all the different I want, I don't want, etc., that are in the mind, the tremendous scattering of energy, the dispersal of energy, the divergence, all of that gradually is gathered together, collected, and unified to begin with around the breath. But the samadhi practice goes beyond the breath and comes to, at least uh, adequate for our purposes, a place where the knowing right now has at least one object, the breath. At a certain point, the knowing, the, even the breath falls away and it's just pure knowing. It's as if knowing knows itself. It's, it's a state of wakefulness, extreme wakefulness, but there are no other objects. It's just pure wakefulness. Now, any step along the way movement in that to, to some degree in that direction is tremendously healing. For example, why is samadhi helpful for vipassana? Whereas for those of you who are new, uh, these two uh, ways, the way, of, uh, the way of samadhi and the way of uh, insight, work closely together and ultimately we're, we're attempting to yoke them so that they're one, they're unified. But there are times when we emphasize one and times when we emphasize another. The degree to which we can let go of the objects that are moving at a, at a ferocious rate sometimes in the mind and unify our attention around the breath brings with it stillness. With stillness comes happiness. 
I'm speaking in very non-technical terms about what it feels like. The breath, for example, becomes more subtle. It becomes quite a bit more subtle as you keep doing this. With that subtlety, uh, the heart starts feeling happier. The body starts feeling lighter. There's an overall increase in the sense of well-being. You could say that the heart gladdens itself as it drops all of these other preoccupations which are stressful and just settles in itself. Now, the practice is learning how to do that and at first it's just a glimpse, a second here or a second there or a moment here or two minutes there. But you have to understand that we're at the early stages of a a practice that takes a while. It takes a great deal of patience and dedication and interest And what tends to happen is these moments of quiet or stillness, and the stillness is another way of saying happiness, and it's also another way of saying strength. We need a strong mind. The mind has to be very strong for spiritual work. Otherwise, it's just sentimentality and fanciful. And part of the training here is to create, to develop a mind that's very strong, But a strong mind is a mind that's very peaceful. When you have the images of strength, you might be going in the opposite direction. In inner work, the mind becomes strong as it empties itself of thought, because it's thought that wears it out, exhausts it, confusion, conflict, etc. So as the mind learns to drop out of the world in that sense, I'm not telling you to give up your partners and your jobs. I'm just saying in that moment, there's no world when you get really quiet. If there is a world, then you're still to some degree uh, at the earlier stages of this. And let's assume we all are. As the mind becomes more quiet, you drop into a space that's very healing. As there are no thoughts in it, even for just those moments, the mind has a chance to gain in energy, and that's what I mean by strength. And so it can accumulate a great deal of energy. And then, of course, the question is how to use that energy. Now, with practice, these periods of stillness increase in duration, they increase in intensity, and they increase in subtlety. So we learn how to come to this place, we learn how to Uh, extend our visit. This is not a place to stay forever. And we learn how to intensify the benefit of that visit. And when we've had enough, when we've uh, been quiet enough, when we feel rejuvenated, refreshed enough, there's a way in which you come out. And it's at that point that you have a mind that is really fit to do a lot of things. If you want to do vipassana, wonderful. What you can then do is saturate an object with awareness. If you can picture a mind that has been rested, that has lots of energy, that is fresh, and that is not preoccupied, so it's not easily distracted because it's already gladdened. It's gladdened itself just by being in itself, by letting go of the cares of the day for all of us. It's happy enough to be able to take on the job of examining 
the mind-body as is suggested in Vipassana practice without it being distracted by everything that comes up. The mind that doesn't have this happiness attempts to do Vipassana and it sticks to an object for a second or two and then it's distracted. What about that? What about this? I've got to go over here. Maybe this. A mind that's happy that has had, that has in a sense soaked itself in, in peace, it's able to be uh, fulfilled enough to look at an object and it has the strength to saturate that object with awareness and to see its nature, to see the nature of that object with increasing depth depending on um, how our practice is going. Now, there are other values of this uh, samadhi and I'm talking about a reasonably far along development of it but degrees of this are accessible to all of us in this room if we do it, if we practice. For example, daily life. Let's limit it to daily life here. Are there some people from the work retreat here? I promised I'd say something that was relevant for them. And I'm really trying hard, but I can't think of it. This is the only thing I can come up with. Let's see if it becomes something else. Let's say you uh, become somewhat proficient in this ability to calm and steady the mind. And so there's an accumulation of, of energy. What then becomes possible, especially if you understand the value of it and the beauty of it, is that you can pour that energy into whatever it is you're doing. In other words, whatever you encounter in life, you bring much more to it. You could say you spiritualize life or you bring Dharma energy into life. And the challenge then becomes living fully in every encounter where nothing is trivial. Chopping the vegetables or meeting your most important friend or whatever it is. The energy that you've accumulated is now poured into your life activities. And of course, that runs down. So at which point, just as we need rest when the physical body gets tired. So at a certain point, it's very helpful to dip into samadhi as well. Uh, so that the, the practice of daily life is only enhanced if the mind is clearer and steadier. We, we have a tool, we're more fit to do whatever it is that we want to do in a way that uh, has excellence in it. Now, if you go to really good monasteries, it's quite obvious that that's what's going on. There's just a lot of joy. I wouldn't say there are a huge, in my experience, not a huge number of them left, but there are some. And what is happening is that people are really practicing and they're not only developing, they're developing wisdom, they're developing calm, both together. And they're learned, they've learned, or they're learning how to express this in the most simple activities. So life is much more joyful. It's not that uh, cleaning the bathroom is so great. You know, that we should, I don't know, have pictures of the Buddha sweeping the bathroom, otherwise we won't do it. But it's that when you're awake, you're more alive. And so whatever it is you do is experienced that way. It's not in the objects. The joy is in us. Right now, we're imprisoned by objects. We're so object-bound that we keep hankering after those objects which will release some happiness. 
And when we get them, we feel great, but then they don't last. What if we were less object-bound and that the source of the joy came from within? We still would live in the world with objects, but we're no longer so dependent on the objects, thinking that the, the happiness is in the objects. We would know that the happiness is in us. And it's fine to participate in the world. The world's a great place. Potentially. Maybe. For people on the work retreat, in order to do this, it's not enough to have samadhi because if if you don't know how to use it, you'll have a lot of energy and perhaps create more problems than are... Maybe it was better you never learned samadhi as you bowl people over and all the rest of it. Uh, There, the other aspects of the practice, like uh, the moral sensitivity that Karato talked about a few few evenings ago, um, understanding things like the way in which we expend energy Let's say you have samadhi or you have a lot of energy. The mind is clear and and alive and bright. But we tend to use that and give more care when there are important people around or big events happening. But then when there's just Joe and Jane Schmo around, we don't care that much. Or if we're, let's say, making a big gourmet meal to impress someone, we're very alert. But then uh, just some old friend comes over and you know you open up a can of something and we're half asleep. Not realizing that the disrespect that's in that. And the spiritual life has to do with developing infinite respect. That's what all people like Mother Teresa, what, what is that all about? It's infinite respect. Nothing is, everything is worthy of respect. Uh, Ajahn Suwat dealt with that at the higher levels the other evening when he talked about the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. But it's also in the tiniest, ordinariest things. How we relate to a person, just a brief exchange. Uh, how we act. What we do with objects, the world of objects and the world of nature. We're expressing ourselves and putting our signature on everything all the time. That's about it for the work retreatants. See if we can get back to Samadhi now. (laughs) Let me review the practice and see what comes out of that. You've been hearing it probably, so it's coming out of your ears by now. And it'll come out of your your ears one more time. We follow the breath. We allow the breath to flow naturally. Already, hang up number one. I haven't even opened my mouth and I realize a big problem. Some people get bored with the breath. It's true. We hear it in interviews and you know it. There are times where why would I want to follow the breath? Which is, of course, taking the medicine of of Dharma and the heart doesn't want to take its medicine. It wants to play with the kilesis. It wants to romp in that field out there. And the breath doesn't seem very interesting. It just seems like a glass of spring water. And we really want champagne or scotch or... It's so neutral. I mean, it's just a breath. 
it's not unusual for people to, to feel bored with the breath. Or uh, sometimes people will make another distinction. A few people in interviews have said they really uh, have an easy time being alert and awake in nature, taking a walk in the woods or taking the walk around the loop and seeing the lake. And it's all, it's, nature has a hold over their mind. They're very motivated and they can see. But the breath is just not interesting. Well, I guess you know what I'm about to say. If the breath isn't nature, I don't know what is. Actually, a good attitude for practicing meditation is one of a naturalist. Let's say if you like to watch birds or if you like to watch the ocean or the sky or just uh, get some delight from observing nature in any of its many forms. It's very helpful if you can come to understand because in, in Buddhism, one meaning of Dharma is nature. But we, it isn't that a person is outside of nature. It's not that nature is only trees and birds and fish and so forth. Is that there's only nature. Nature is happening and we're it. The mind is part of nature. And when you observe the breath, you could observe it the way you watch birds, if that's what you like to do, or watch the ocean. Understand that it's your own mind that you're watching, or the breath. It's a totally different thing, especially as you begin to appreciate what breathing is. Even if your mind is not very concentrated, sometimes you can feel happy by just grasping the fact that you're breathing. Here I am breathing. Isn't that extraordinary? And the mind is not very concentrated. It's just understood what it is that it's trying to develop concentration on. That function is literally life and death hanging right there. Same with the walking meditation, developing calm through doing the walking. Just as we take the breath for granted, we take walking for granted. But it is possible sometimes to feel the beauty of just putting your foot down on the earth, to just be able to walk. And as was mentioned a few days ago, there are many people in the world who can't walk. Elderly people, sick people, people who've been hurt, severely damaged. As you start to get into that, and I don't mean it as an ideal, so that now everyone's going to go outside and try to really feel how wonderful it is to walk. I don't think that will work. probably last about five seconds, and then we'll get back to it being bored, boring, is that if you keep practicing the obviousness of it comes from within. And a simple act like walking is not boring. Because some people have said, walking is, why do we do it? What is, what is the point of walking? What does that have to do with wisdom, liberation, meditation, development of compassion? So the practice is, in this sense, the development of this attention, to pay attention to what's happening, is the development of respect. And I think that respect is only infinite. They keep being things that we have to learn how to respect because we don't. Okay, so now we're following the breath. See if we can get to the next step. The mind wanders and moves to something else. And if you recall, the instructions are to come back to the breath. Now, why would you want to do that? I hope to some degree, just by, because of some of the words said tonight and on other times during the retreat, even if that's just faith, 
that there's something valuable in understanding that you have a new option. You don't always have to, uh, as almost as a slave, go along with everything that comes up in the mind. You can sort of lift the needle off the record and just go to the breath and that mind movie falls apart. It can, especially as you get better at this. Let me give you a very small example. Happened to me the other day. I was about to say something that was clearly wrong speech. It was a little bit unkind about a mutual friend. I was talking to someone uh, about a friend. And I heard it in the mind and quickly exchanged that thought with Budo. I just went to, instead of saying it, I just went Budo, Budo. And it fell away. And I replaced, oh, you know, you know how he is. He's always the kind of guy who, you know, that you know, we've, been, we've known him for all these years and he's, he's never, it's always been that way. I traded that voice in for just Budo. And it's interesting, when the Budo is uttered in, inwardly, uh, in the right way, that means uh, you know it when you hear it, it has a way of lulling the mind into a kind of calmness. It helps pacify the mind. And right in that moment, that was really helpful. Now, that's not the only way to do it. You don't need Budo. And you don't need, you could also use the breath in that moment experience an in or an out breath replacing the speech that you were about to utter with that. Now that is removing yourself from the problem. And as many of you know, Vipassana is about facing the problem. So I'm not saying this is the only thing to do because as the mind gets stronger, you just look at whatever it is. And that's enough. As the mind gets stronger, you look at... uh, any of these things that come up in the mind and you see their nature. But if, if that looking doesn't have stability, then the looking won't be able to penetrate deeply enough to modify what's happening and help, you, help release you. Let me put it this way. Samadhi practice is like cutting the grass. It's said by one commentator. Vipassana is like taking the grass up by the roots. So that samadhi in and of itself is a temporary arresting of these troublesome energies that are in the mind. It's a very helpful thing to be able to do though. That is to be able to rest the mind, to be able in a moment when things, where you need some calm, to have a strongly developed relationship to an object so that you can turn to it and use that object as an anchor and develop calm rather than be overwhelmed by what's happening. Now, that's one kind of skillful use of our practice. Another kind is, and that's of course why we're doing the samadhi, is to take that stability of mind and to direct it at whatever it is, fear, terror, loneliness, boredom, hatred, But it helps if the mind is stronger than anything that comes in front of it. The samadhi is training so that the mind can become stronger than anything that comes in front of it. The final test for all of us probably being death. Do we stay calm and collected and steady and learn what it means to die? Or do we become perplexed and delude ourselves and create all kinds of imaginary worlds to avoid it? 
So I'm not, I just want to make sure, especially that the new people don't misunderstand that we're, Vipassana is about turning away from the world. Yeah, I took this uh, nine days and they taught it, just turn away from the world. Anything bad comes up, just kind of bury your head in the sand like an ostrich and use the breath that way. Now, even there, there's a subtlety of practice. Let's say you're following the breath. And one person reported this. They said in an interview, uh, I've had a lot of sadness for a few days now, and I'm really tired of looking at sadness. Okay. When doing the samadhi practice, what you can do is you can turn away from the sadness. You can turn to the breath. But then, as some of you therapists out there, um, stereotyping you or projecting or whatever, might say, well, isn't that repression or suppression or denial or something like that? It can be. And often in life, that's exactly what we do. We become absorbed in all kinds of things so that we don't have to face ourselves. But there's a subtle, now I'm just talking about the sitting practice with the breath, a subtle way in which, let's say, there is this sadness and the person realistically knows, I simply can't be with this anymore can acknowledge that, can in that moment honestly feel that they do not want to face their sadness and fully just, real, just state that, acknowledge it and knowingly turn to the breath. Can you feel the difference between that or when you just run away from it or squash something down? You understand what's happening. It's like saying, I'm not up to this right now. I intend to come back to it. I know it's unfinished business. I'm not kidding myself. But right at this moment, my mind's not strong enough to enter into this sadness. And so what's much more skillful and wise is to, again, depending on the degree to which we've developed the calm of the samadhi, I'm going to enter into the calm and the samadhi, which might mean, as you come out of that, that you might be willing to take on the sadness. Can you see how they begin to work together? I don't want to go too much into that, Okay, so we've, we're following the breath. When the mind leaves the breath, we come back. We come back without any blame, if you recall. And then we attempt to be with the breath in as continuous a way as possible. And the key in samadhi work is this continuity. Coming back so that there are fewer and fewer gaps so that our ability to pay attention to the breathing is as uninterrupted as possible. And it is possible to develop attention in this practice so that it can be steady attention for extended periods of time. There are some people who have developed it to the point where they can place their attention on an object for as long as they would like it to be there and then to leave whenever they would like to leave. Now, between having a totally uncontrolled mind and that state, is quite a range and any step along the way is an asset. So any step in that direction that we all move towards is an asset because you now have a mind that's fit to do all kinds of things. Now, one of the reasons for a talk like this, quite frankly, is that I know it's not like I have not uh, done samadhi practice and experienced the dreariness of it or the uh, strenuous aspect of it or the meaninglessness of it or 
just wanting to play in that field of fantasy and all the rest. It's that I know that this is something that comes up and unless the mind knows that this is really a valuable activity, it very easily loses the motivation. Now, at this point, you're still dependent to some degree on somebody else telling you this is good for you. But in Buddhism, it isn't that kind of faith or conviction that you might have based on someone else's words is provisional. It's designed to help arouse energy, arouse energy to do the practice so that you can begin to see that there's some truth in what's being said. And as you start to tap peace in your own heart, no one will have to motivate you. You'll start, also you'll gain a profound respect for the value of the mind, the mind-heart, whatever you want to call it. At this point, most human beings probably take better care of their car and their garden than they do of their own heart and mind. Now, we might not think that so, but the whole practice is premised on that fact that we really do not care for the heart. An enormous amount of energy goes into projects that on their face maintain that they are for our well-being. And yet we're not happy. The price we pay is enormous. Dharma practice is an attempt to turn that around. What it's saying is we're fully responsible for our own happiness and our own unhappiness. And we've got to begin to see how we harm ourselves through ignorance, through greed, through anger and aggression and so forth. And once we can start to, to realize that the treasure is us. We, it is us. It's not even that we have it. The motivation to do all of these different kinds of practices changes and something, and maybe we should just end it on, on this note, effort becomes very strong. And in our culture, effort is not such a happy word. It's sort of, well, yeah, it's good, workaholic, and you need to do it. It's kind of duty but there is such a thing called joyous effort. Again, it's not something that you can legislate. It comes out of working on your own behalf, working in projects that are so obviously beneficial that help you and everyone who comes in contact with you. Anyway, this is my plea to stay in there. No matter how hot it gets or how discouraged it gets. And we'll also be talking a, bit, uh, a lot more, or somewhat more, about the wisdom aspect as well. But on this retreat, we will be emphasizing this, the samadhi work. And uh, in the interviews, we can work out individual ways of uh, approaching this. Can we have a few moments' silence? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.